0: sometimes called the wise men or the wise ones or the three kings, they follow a star and pay their respects and bring gifts to the baby Jesus. We actually don't know how many there were. There could have been 150 Magi thundering across the desert towards Judea. But there were three gifts. And so in our images and paintings, we see three. And when I was a girl, this picture that I found kind of typifies how I thought of them. I thought of them as kings rather than wise men, and the one closest to us in his very English garb. Um, this, these were the three kings to me. The story of the three Magi in the current thinking is that they were Persian Zoroastrians. Persia held powerful religious sway during the thousand years that surrounded Jesus' birth. They were monotheists, meaning that they believed there was just one omnipotent creator God. They were mystics, but their beliefs were grounded in the study of the universe and the natural world and the stars. Many people adhered to and respected the Zoroastrian religion, which included values of justice, compassion, and wisdom, and incorporated a deep respect for nature, as part of God's creation, does that sound familiar right there you can see that there's a lot that overlaps here's a picture of modern day Zoroastrians in Tehran celebrating in a ritual about returning of light to the world like most Mesopotamian understanding of the ancient world in this whole area of the Levant the Hebrews everybody who's picking up on everybody else's understanding, um, understood light and fire as deep related to the Spirit, an eye of the Spirit or a perceptible emanation of God. And our faith is grounded in this as well. Abraham shares this understanding and we see it clearly in stories like the burning bush where Moses is confronted with the fire of God. Jesus, too, declares that God is light, And in our Bible, we hear of the New Jerusalem. It will be so lit up that there will be no need for the moon and no need for the sun because God's light itself will illuminate the city. Remember, too, the Bible isn't a historical document. It isn't interested in the concrete, literal truths so much as it's interested in showing us what God is like, how God is working in the real world, and inviting us to wonder and to believe. A number of the Zoroastrian wise folk may well have visited Bethlehem to see the infant Jesus. They may have come to Jesus when he was already a year or two old. We can think about that timeline of a bunch of camels and a bunch of wise guys traveling the desert. Takes a little bit of time. The Gospels of Luke, Mark, and John... Don't mention the wise folk called Magi coming to visit Jesus at all. Only Matthew does. Matthew is the most Judean, the most Hebrew of all our Gospels in its source and interests. It is the one most likely to speak about Jesus as the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecies. Matthew writes about the nativity, about the time that Jesus was Uh, telling the story, but he writes afterwards, about at least 50 years orally, 100 years to 300 years before this story is being written down in any form that we are receiving it. Matthew tells the story of Jesus at a time when the Judean people, culture, and religion are all under brutal attack. The the Judeo-Roman wars have all but destroyed the people the Greeks had been cruel conquerors, and the Romans, when they set their armies against the Judean cities, they destroyed Jerusalem, and it was awful. Matthew knows there are many who admire this powerful wisdom religion called Zoroastrianism. The Hebrew God seems defeated. Jerusalem is destroyed. Judeans are refugees. The Zoroastrian God seems to have power. And wisdom, internationally, maybe maybe they're on to something. How Matthew comes across the story, we don't know. Maybe he was in when he was in Syria or Egypt. He came across a Zoroastrian priest who told him the story, or he learned that this had happened. But we don't know. We don't have to believe Matthew's story is historical to recognize that this story is faithful. Matthew is making a point about faith. Matthew is bringing together what is similar between the Judeans and the Zoroastrians. Both love justice. Both recognize God as the one and God as light. Both value wisdom and the creation. Both know God as loving and compassionate. And Matthew says even the Zoroastrians recognize these things about God. And even though they're not Judean, They can see those things in Jesus. These Magi that folks admire and honor for their wisdom, though they are not Hebrew and not born of the line of Abraham, they are still smart and wise enough. They got a glimpse of God enough that when they saw the star, they did not hesitate to follow where it led them. And that is epiphany. It's that glimpse of God. It just comes upon you. You are a human standing there one minute, and the next minute you witness or experience something, and you just know that you are in the presence of God. You just know that God is here and is real and is right now and is right there and is wonderful. For a minute, you are lost to it, staring at the light or the rolling hills, or the stars of the Milky Way, or this beautiful, tiny, sleeping newborn. God is so big, and God is right here, right now. The Christ in me, and the Christ in you, just had a moment. Epiphany. So epiphany is what that moment of Christ' recognition is called. when we see and recognize God's presence, but it's also the name for a season of the church. We focus in Sunday today on epiphany as part of the expected and desired experience of the faithful. And it's a pretty big deal. So in writing the sermon, um, anybody not know I love John Wesley) shocker coming right up. So I searched, searched his sermons, his journal, his letters, and of course it's possible I missed something. But I did digital surface searches as well as reference searches, and I turned up exactly nothing about the Magi, nothing about the wise men, nothing about epiphany. The word doesn't show up. Wesley gave over 40,000 sermons. We have many sermons written down. So interesting... Jesus did, uh, John Wesley didn't even preach on Matthew 2. Never does that little thing ever come up, and he preached on a lot of stuff. So I went to one place I knew there must be something, and that was his exploratory notes from the Bible, explanatory notes on the Bible. So he uh, was a leader among, uh, he, he uh, organized Methodism and knew many of the local pastors that, he, that were sent out to preach. And he would write notes on the Bible to help them understand what was going on. And the notes here, what he wrote about this took me by surprise. Now this might be old hat for some of you, but it was a new hat for me. And it's so perfect in keeping with the Wesleyan understanding of the Holy Spirit as the center, driving, connecting, holding force in faith and what God is doing. Wesley is also practical. So I'm going to go right to the practical piece first. So Mary and Joseph, after the Magi, the next part of the story is that they have to flee to Egypt. And the reason is because the word is getting out that the king of the Judeans has been born, that this new leader, blessed by God, has arisen and is born in Bethlehem. And Herod is a bad guy. Herod feels a threat to his power and sends out the word that all baby boys of a certain age must be killed in order to eliminate the threat. Every family with a young male child fled, as you can imagine, including uh, Mary and Joseph with the baby. And here's this wonderful bit of practical help from John Wesley who says, isn't it providential that the wise men came by with gold and frankincense and myrrh right when they were gonna need a bunch of money just to get through their time in Egypt where they would be strangers, right? So I just loved, I don't know who you sell frankincense and myrrh to, excuse me. (laughs) I've got some frankincense. Um, The gold, I'm sure they could get a good price on a free market. Here I've always thought, have you ever thought about what did they do with all of? what did they do with it? They put on a shelf, Right, like, there's the gold that we got from the, right? Does it travel Nazareth with the family? Is it hidden in a bunker underneath the house? I mean, right, what happened to it? So this is kind of this lovely, <clears throat> wonderful look at the way Wesley thinks in terms of the practical providence of, of, uh, of God. But it is really, really well <clears throat> and important to remember that Jesus was a refugee, as was his family. So for Jesus, though he is so for John Wesley, though he is practical, he believes the spirit. So this he doesn't believe this is just a lucky occurrence, but that it's providential. And he uses that word to mean that God's spirit is active in the doing. And it's really important to remember that. Okay, so this is the next part of the f- story. And the most fun part from my perspective, <clears throat> when I was giggling, myself, uh, because it brings in the story of Balaam. Does anybody know who Balaam is or remember? Okay, so this is a fun story. Now, Balaam was this fiery prophet seer guy who lived in Aram, 2,000 years, thousands of years before Jesus, um, and he is living at a time when uh, the Israelites are coming into Canaan and they're starting to bump elbows with all their neighbors and little fights are breaking out. It's kind of a scary thing. He is really respected as someone who can move into an alternate state of consciousness, experience, and come to understand what God is doing So here comes the Israelites, and they're encroaching on the kingdom of Moab. And the king of Moab is getting super nervous because there's a lot of them. And the king of Moab isn't sure at all that he can hold his own territory against them. And so he's like, oh, I've heard this guy, Balaam. I know what we'll do. We'll tell him, come here. We'll pay you. Come here and pronounce some curses on Israel for us. Come and curse Israel, and I'll pay you. So Balaam, they, they've journeyed over to talk to Balaam, and he's like, hey, sure, but let me, let me pray about it. So during the night, during the prayer, an angel appears to Balaam and says, don't do it. Don't go pronounce curses on Israel. There's some back and forth negotiation with the angel, talking back to an angel again, not sure I would do that. Well, back and forth, a couple of different things happen later. The money goes up. Hey, we'll pay you more. We'll pay you more. And Balaam says, decides he's going to ignore the angel, (laughs) right? Uh, Off he goes on the donkey, dump-da-dump, and um, heads out to see the king of Moab to do a lot of cursing. Yeah, I told you we got weird stories in the Bible. It gets weirder. The angel sees Balaam heading off down the road and proceeds to stand straight in the donkey's path. Now, this donkey can see angel, but Balaam, who has blinded himself cannot. The donkey swerves off the road and down a lane with Balaam yelling at her to get back on the road and then Balaam starts hitting her with the stick and the angel is still right there so the donkey lies down squishing Balaam's foot. Yes, in the Bible it tells us that he got his foot squished and Balaam is beating the donkey all the more. The angel watches all this and has had enough So the angel gives the donkey the power of speech. I think it looked something like that. (laughs) Balaam and the donkey have this conversation. A conversation of complaint where the donkey says, Hey, quit hitting me. What have I ever done to you? And Balaam yells back with the likes of you, Torment me by ignoring my orders and squishing my foot. So the angel tolerates this only for so long, before giving Balaam a sort of spiritual zap of awakening. And Balaam can now see and hear the angel. So is Balaam contrite now? Like, ooh, angel again? Sadly, not. (laughs) How many of us are contrite in this moment, or still headed on, like, I don't know, I'm getting paid a lot of money, and it's just a few curses, and you know, I don't know, are you sure? Are you sure? Balaam still wants to go to Moab. So the angel says, okay, fine. But if you go, you will say the words that I put in your mouth to say. So Balaam and the donkey, once more off they go. I thought of this, like there was a donkey that brought Mary to Bethlehem in the nativity story. And I think that donkey has a way better job than this poor donkey stuck bringing uh, Balaam to Moab. So Balaam gets to Boab and of course sets out to do what he expects to be very well paid for, the king of Moab gets everything ready. This is a kind of an Illuminati image, isn't it? Sort of scary. But it does depict these burning altars and the, the priests gathering around. There's a semblance of Assyrian look here. These folks are Moabian, so I don't know. But the king of Moab gets everything ready, sacrificing oxen and sheep, and Balaam ramps it up, saying, more altars, more sacrifices. Add seven rams and seven bulls. And then Balaam prays to God for the message to proclaim and everybody is ready for the cursing to start. And out of Balaam's mouth, instead of curses against Israel, Balaam speaks blessings instead. So that just escalates, right? The Balaam says, okay, we're going to need more bulls and more rams. I'm not sure if there was a ram left alive in Moab after this whole thing was over And it happens over and over again. Blessings pour out of Balaam's mouth instead of curses, including this blessing. And this is the one John Wesley pulls into the explanatory notes. He says, a star comes from Jacob. A scepter arises from Israel. The curses that the king of Moab had hoped would fall on Israel instead fall on Moab. Moab and the other smaller nations will fall, and Israel would survive to see a Messiah rise from within. Balaam says, I have seen him, but not yet. I look at him, but he is not nearby. It is that glimpse of God in the hush. It is that moment the Messiah comes. Epiphany. The story of the priest who defied an angel and rode a talking donkey is the story that John Wesley uses to explain the story of the Magi. (laughs) Gotta love him. And it's so Wesleyan. A star comes from Jacob and a scepter arises from Israel. It is the thing both king of Moab and the king Herod fear most, loss of power. And Moab falls and the Moabites and the Israelites come to terms with each other and they fall in love with each other and marry each other and Moab becomes integral part of the story of God's people. Why does John Wesley use it? John Wesley believed that the Holy Spirit was a present and powerful force in life. It moved freely through the created material of the earth into and out of the human heart and hands and feet and mouth. The Holy Spirit was an active presence. It could come over you and throw you down to the ground, wrestling with your sins so overwrought by the purest, deepest, most wonderful love you have ever felt. In his lifetime during the revivals and conversions, he witnessed this happening over and over again. The spirit moved people. It transformed people. It possessed people. It opened their mouths to utter words they did not know they would or could or even should say. Balaam is a selfish, short-sighted, regular human being who does the wrong thing. But he and we... Do not have to be perfect to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Balaam didn't listen real well. What if we did? But Balaam prayed and the Spirit came upon him, just like the angel said. He prayed and the Spirit could not be held back, but it bloomed from within him as only the Spirit can. Despite his failings and his desire to make a lot of money and do a lot of cursing, the Spirit within transformed everything so that truth instead erupted and blessings came instead of curses. The Holy Spirit blows where it will. We can be like Balaam, of course, if we choose. And we can blindly keep hitting the donkey we're riding on. We're just not going to get anything out of it except torment. When we allow ourselves to see and be seen by the divine, to be touched and moved by the Spirit... It is then that we see God. Like the Zoroastrians 2,000 years ago, there was a great star in the east, and they can feel the power of the Holy Spirit, and they have a close encounter, a moment of spiritual awakening, a moment when they see God. The wise ones, the Magi, who visited Jesus in Bethlehem under that star did not leave the same way they arrive. Because we may be a resurrection people, but in John Wesley's understanding, we are a transformation people. Once the wise ones had seen God, it changed everything. They don't go back to Herod's way. They find a new path ahead. All of you expect to feel the Holy Spirit in your life. You can even now choose to see the angel standing in front of you. You leave this church on a Sunday and you have your way home. What if you allowed yourself a moment? that little bit more transformational set expected it and go home that way today what does that mean in your life will you dare to be transformed in Christ Will you? If so, your answer is, Amen. Amen.